Chapter 15 of The Eagle's Shadow by James Branch Cabell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Originally recorded by John M. Wilson for Bureau 42, donated to LibriVox with his express permission. 15. After a vituperative half-hour or so, Mr. Woods was hungry. He came back towards Selwood, and upon the terrace in front of the house he found Kathleen Salmarez. During the warm weather, one corner of the terrace had been converted by means of gay red and white awnings into a sort of living room. There were chairs, tables, sofa cushions, bowls of roses, and any number of bright-colored rugs. Altogether was a cozy place, and the glowing hues of its furnishings were very becoming to Mrs. Salmarez, who sat there writing industriously. It was a thought embarrassing. They had avoided one another yesterday, rather obviously, both striving to put off a necessary awkward meeting. Now it had come, and now, somehow, their eyes met for a moment, and they laughed frankly, and the awkwardness was gone. Kathleen, said Mr. Woods with conviction, you're a dear. You broke my heart, said she demurely, but I'm going to forgive you. Mrs. Salmarez was not striving to be clever now, and heavens, thought Billy, how much nicer she was like this. Wasn't the same woman. Her thin cheeks flushed arbutus-like, and her rather metallic voice was grown low and gentle. Billy brought memories with him, you see, and for the moment she was Kathleen Epps again. Kathleen Epps in the first flush of youth eager, trustful, and joyous-hearted, as he had known her long ago. Since then, the poor woman had eaten of the bread of dependence, and had found it salt enough. She had paid for it daily, enduring a thousand petty slights, a thousand petty insults, and smiling under them as only women can. But she had forgotten now that shrewd Kathleen Salmarez, who must earn her livelihood as best she might. She smiled frankly, a purely unprofessional smile. I was sorry when I heard you were coming she said irrelevantly, but I'm glad now. Mr. Woods, I grieve to relate, was still holding her hand in his. There stirred in his pulses the thrill Kathleen Epps had always wakened. A thrill of memory now, a mere wraith of emotion. He was thinking of a certain pink-cheeked girl with crinkly black-brown hair and eyes that he had likened to chrysoberyls, and he wondered whimsically what had become of her. This was not she. This was assuredly not Kathleen for this woman had a large mouth, a humorous and kindly mouth, it was true, but undeniably a large one, whereas Kathleen's mouth had been quite perfect and rather diminutive than otherwise. Hadn't he rhymed of it often enough to know? They stood gazing at one another for a long time, and in the back of Billy's brain lines of his old verses sang themselves to a sad little tune, the verses that reproved the idiocy of all other poets, who had very foolishly written their sonnets to other women. And yet, as the jingle pointed out, had these poets ever strayed in thy path, they had not made random rhymes of Arabella, songs of Dolly, hymns of Stella, lays of Lalage or Chloris, not of Daphne nor of Doris, Florimel nor Amaryllis, nor of Phyllida nor Phyllis, were their wanton melodies. But all of these, all their melodies had been of thee, Kathleen. Would they had been? Billy thought it improbable. The verses were very silly, and recalling the big, blundering boy who had written them, Billy began to wonder, somewhat forlornly, whether he, too, had vanished. He and the girl he had gone mad for both seemed rather mythical, legendary as King Pepin. Yes, said Mrs. Salmarez, and oh, she startled him. I fancy they're both quite dead by now, Billy, she cried earnestly. Don't laugh at them. Don't laugh at those dear, foolish children. I—somehow I couldn't bear that, Billy. Kathleen, said Mr. Woods in admiration, 
You're a witch. I wasn't laughing, though, my dear. I was developing quite a twilight mood over them. A plaintive, old lettery sort of mood, you know? She sighed a little. Yes, I know. Then her eyelids flickered in a parody of Kathleen's glance that Billy noted with a queer tenderness. Come and talk to me, Billy, she commanded. I'm an early bird this morning, and entitled to the very biggest and best-looking worm I can find. You're only a worm, you know. We're all worms. Mr. Jukesbury told me so last night, making an exception in my favor, for it appears I'm an angel. He was amorously inclined last night, the tipsy old fraud. It's shameless, Billy, the amount of money he gets out of Miss Hugonin for the deserving poor. Do you know I rather fancy he classes himself under that head? And I grant you he's poor enough. But deserving? Mrs. Salmarez snapped her fingers eloquently. Eh? Uh, shark, eh? Uh, queried Mr. Woods. In some discomfort, she nodded. He is as bad as Sarah Haggage, she informed him, and everybody knows what a bloodsucker she is. The Haggage is a disease, Billy, that all rich women are exposed to, more easily caught than the pestilence, and the taker runs presently mad. Depend upon it, Billy. Those two will have every penny they can get out of your uncle's money. Peggy's so generous, he pleaded. She wants to make everybody happy. Bring about a general millennium, you know. She pays dearly enough for her fancies, said Miss Samrez, in a hard voice. Then, after a little, she cried suddenly. Oh, Billy, Billy, it shames to me to think of how we lie to her, and toady to her, and lead her on from one mad scheme to another, all for the sake of the money we can pilfer incidentally. We're all arrant hypocrites, you know. I'm no better than the others, Billy. Not a bit better. But my husband left me so poor, and I had always been accustomed to the pretty things of life. And I couldn't, I couldn't give them up, Billy. I love them too dearly, so I'd lie, and toady, and write driveling talks about things I don't understand for driveling women to listen to, and I still have the creature comforts of life. I pawn my self-respect for them. That's all. Such a little price to pay, isn't it, Billy? She spoke in a sort of frenzy. I dare say that at the onset she wanted Mr. Woods to know the worst of her, knowing he could not fail to discover it in time. Billy brought memories with him, you see, and this shrewd, hard woman wanted somehow, more than anything else in the world, that he should think well of her. So she babbled out the whole pitiful story, waiting in a kind of terror to see contempt and disgust awaken in his eyes. But he merely said, I see, I see, very slowly and his eyes were kindly. He couldn't be angry with her somehow. That pink-cheeked, crinkly-haired girl stood between them and shielded her. He was only very, very sorry. And Canaston? He asked after a little. Mrs. Somerez flushed. Mr. Canaston is a man of great genius, she said quickly. Of course, Miss Hugonin is glad to assist him in publishing his books. It's an honor to her that he permits it. They have to be published privately, you know, as the general public isn't capable of appreciating such dainty little masterpieces. Oh, don't make any mistake, Billy. Mr. Canaston is a very wonderful and very admirable man. Hmm, yes. He struck me as being an unusually nice chap, said Mr. Woods, untruthfully. I dare say they'll be very happy. Who? Mrs. Somerez demanded. Why, uh, I don't suppose they'll make any secret of it, Billy stammered in tardy repentance of his hasty speaking. Peggy told me last night she had accepted him. Mrs. Somerez turned to rearrange a bowl of roses. She seemed to have some difficulty over it. Billy, she spoke inconsequently and with averted head. An honest man is the noblest work of God and the rarest. Billy groaned. Do you know, 
said he, I've just been telling the roses in the gardens yonder the same thing about women. I am a misogynist this morning. I have decided no woman is truly worthy of being loved. That is quite true, she assented. But on the other hand, no man is worthy of loving. Billy smiled. I have likewise come to the conclusion, said he, that a man's love is like his hat, in that any peg will do to hang it on. Also, in that the proper and best place for it is, is on his own head. Oh, I assure you, I vented any number of cheap cynicisms on the helpless roses. And yet, will you believe it, Kathleen, it doesn't seem to make me feel a bit better. No, not a bit. It's very like his hat, she declared, and that he has a new one every year. Then she rested her hand on his in a half-maternal fashion. What's the matter, boy? she asked softly. You're always so fresh and wholesome. I don't like to see you like this. Better leave phrase-making to us phrase-mongers. Her voice rang true. True and compassionate. And tender. And all that a woman's voice should be. Billy could not but trust her. I've been an ass, said he rather tragically. Oh, not an unusual ass, Kathleen. Just the sort men are always making of themselves. You see, before I went to France, there was a girl I cared for. And I let a quarrel come between us. A foolish, trifling, idle little quarrel, Kathleen, that we might have made up in a half hour. But I was too proud, you see. No, I wasn't proud either, Mr. Woods amended bitterly. I was simply pig-headed and mulish. So I went away, and yesterday I saw her again and realized that I still cared. That's all, Kathleen. It isn't an unusual story. And Mr. Woods laughed mirthlessly and took a turn on the terrace. Mrs. Salmarez was regarding him intently. Her cheeks were of a deeper, more attentive pink, and her breath came and went quickly. I, I don't understand, said she in a rather queer voice. Oh, it's simple enough, Billy assured her. You see, she, well, I think she would have married me once. Yes, she cared for me once, and I quarreled with her. I, conceited young ass that I was, actually presumed to dictate to the dearest, sweetest, most lovable woman on earth, and tell her what she must do and what she mustn't. I, good Lord, I, who wasn't worthy to sweep a crossing clean for her, who wasn't worthy to breathe the same air with her, who wasn't worthy to exist in the same world she honored by living in. Oh, I was an ass. But I've paid for it. Oh, yes, Kathleen, I've paid dearly for it, and I'll pay more dearly yet before I've done. I tried to avoid her yesterday, you must have seen that, and I couldn't... I give you my word I could no more have kept away from her than I could have spread a pair of wings and flown away. She doesn't care a bit for me now, but I can no more give up loving her than I can give up eating my dinner. That isn't a pretty simile, Kathleen, but it expresses the way I feel toward her. It isn't merely that I want her, it's more than that, oh, far more than that. I simply can't do without her. Don't you understand, Kathleen? He asked desperately. Yes, I think I understand she said when he had ended. I, oh, Billy, I am almost sorry. It's dear of you, dear of you, Billy, to care for me still, but, but I'm almost sorry you care so much. I'm not worth it, boy dear, and I, I really don't know what to say. You must let me think. Mr. Woods gave an inarticulate sound. The face she turned to him was perplexed, half sad, fond, a little pleased, and strangely compassionate. It was Kathleen Epps who sat beside him. The six years were as utterly forgotten as the name of Magdalene's first lover. She was a girl again, listening, with a heart that fluttered, I dare say, to the wild talk 
the mad dithyrambics of a big blundering boy. The ludicrous horror of it stunned Mr. Woods. He could no more have told her of her mistake than he could have struck her in the face. Kathleen, said he vaguely, let me think. Oh, let me think, Billy, she pleaded in a flutter of joy and amazement. Go away, boy dear. Go away for a little. Let me think. I'm not an emotional woman, but I'm on the verge of hysterics now for, for several reasons. Go into breakfast, Billy. I, I want to be alone. You've made me very proud and, and sorry, I think, and glad and, and, oh, I don't know, boy dear, but please go now, please. Billy went. In the living hall, he paused to inspect a picture with peculiar interest. Since Kathleen cared for him, he thought rather forlornly, he must perjure himself in as plausible a manner as might be possible. Please God, having done what he had done, he would lie to her like a gentleman and try to make her happy. A vision in incredible violet ruffles coming down to breakfast saw him and paused on the stairway and flushed and laughed deliciously. Poor Billy stared at her and his heart gave a great bound and then appeared to stop for an indefinite time. Good Lord, said Mr. Woods in his soul, and I thought I was an ass last night. Why, last night in comparison I displayed intelligence that was almost human. Oh, Peggy, Peggy, if I only dared tell you what I think of you, I believe I would gladly die afterward. Yes, I'm sure I would. You really haven't any right to be so beautiful. It isn't fair to us, Peggy. But the vision was peeping over the banisters at him, and the vision's eyes were sparkling with a lucent mischief, and a wonderful half-hushed contralto was demanding of him, Oh, where have you been, Billy boy, Billy boy? Oh, where have you been, charming Billy? And Billy's baritone answered her, I've been to seek a wife, and broke off in a groan. Good Lord, cried Mr. Woods. It was a ludicrous business, if you will. Indeed, it was vastly humorous, was it not? This woman's thinking a man's love might by any chance endure through six whole years. But their love endures, you see, and the silly creatures have a superstition among them that love is a sacred thing, stronger than time, victorious over death itself. Let us laugh, then, at Kathleen Samarez. Those of us who have learned that love is only a tinkling symbol and faith a sounding brass, and fidelity an obsolete affectation. But for my part, I honor and think better of the woman, who through all her struggles with the world, through all those sordid, grim, merciless, secret battles, where the vanquished may not even cry for succor, I honor her, I say, for that she had yet cherished the memory of that first love, which is the best, and purest, and most unselfish, and most excellent thing in life. 16. Breakfast Margaret enjoyed hugely. I regret to confess that the fact that every one of her guests was more or less miserable moved this hard-hearted young woman to untimely and excessive mirth. Only Mrs. Samaraz puzzled her, for she could think of no reason for that lady's manifest agitation when Kathleen eventually joined the others. But for the rest, the hopeless glances that Hugh Van Orden cast toward her caused Adele to flush and Mrs. Huggage to become despondent and speechless and astonishingly rigid, and Petheridge Jukesbury's vaguely apologetic attitude toward the world struck Miss Hugonan as infinitely diverting. Canastin she pitied a little, but his bearing toward her ranged ludicrously from that of proprietorship to that of supplication, and 
Moreover, she was furious with him for having hinted at various times that Billy was a fortune hunter. Margaret was quite confident by this that she had never believed him. Not really, you know. Having argued the point out at some length the night before, and reaching her conclusion by a course of reasoning peculiar to herself. Mr. Woods, as you may readily conceive, was sunk in the slough of despond deeper than ever plummet sounded. Margaret thought this very nice of him. It was a delicate tribute to her that he ate nothing, and the fact that Hugh Van Orden and Petheridge Jukesbury, as she believed, acted in precisely the same way for precisely the same reason, merely demonstrated, of course, that her overwhelming conceit and presumption. So, sitting in the great eagle's shadow, she ate a quantity of marmalade, she was wont to begin the day in this ungodly English fashion, and gossiped like a brook trotting over sunlit pebbles. She had planned a pulverizing surprise for the house party, and in due time she intended to explode it, and subsequently Billy was to apologize for his conduct, and then they were to live happily ever afterward. She had not yet decided what he was to apologize for, that was his affair. His conscience ought to have told him by this, wherein he had offended. And if his conscience hadn't, why then of course he would have to apologize for his lack of proper sensibility. After breakfast she went, according to her usual custom, to her father's rooms, for, as I think I have told you, the old gentleman was never visible until noon. She had astonishing news for him. What time she divulged it, the others sat on the terrace, and Mr. Canaston read to them, as he had promised, from his defense of ignorance. It proved a welcome diversion to more than one of the party. Mr. Woods especially esteemed it a godsend. It staved off misfortune for at least a little, so he sat at Kathleen's side in silence, trying desperately to be happy, trying desperately not to see the tiny wrinkles, the faint crow's feet time had sketched in her face as a memorandum of the work he meant to do shortly. Billy consoled himself with the reflection that he was very fond of her, but, oh, he thought, what worship, what adoration he could accord this woman if she would only decline, positively, to have anything whatever to do with him. I think we ought not to miss hearing Mr. Canaston's discourse. It is generally conceded that his style is wonderfully clever, and I have no doubt that his detractors, who complain that his style is mere word-twisting, a mere inversion of the most ancient truisms, are actuated by the very basest jealousy. Let us listen, then, and be duly edified as he reads in a low, sweet voice and the birds twitter about him in the clear morning. It has been for many years, Mr. Canaston began, the custom of patriotic gentlemen, in quest of office, to point with pride to the fact that the schoolmaster is abroad in the land, in whose defense they stand pledged to draw their salaries and fight to the last gasp for re-election. These lofty platitudes, while trying to the lungs, doubtless appeal to a certain class of minds. But, indeed, the schoolmaster is not abroad. He is domesticated in every village in America, where each hamlet has its would-be Shakespeare, and each would-be Shakespeare has his hamlet by heart. Learning is rampant in the land, and valuable information is pasted up in the streetcars, so that he who rides may read. And ignorance, beautiful divine ignorance, is forsaken by a generation that clamors for the truth. And what value, pray, has this truth that we should lust after it? He glanced up in an inquiring fashion. Mr. Jukesbury, meeting his eyes, smiled and shook his head and said, Fie, fie, very placidly. To do him justice, he had not the least idea what Canaston was talking about. I am aware, the poet continued with an air of generosity, 
that many pleasant things have been said of it. In fact, our decade has turned its back relentlessly upon the decayed, and we no longer read the lament over the lost art of lying, issued many magazines ago by a once prominent British author. Still, without advancing any wild theories, one may fairly claim that truth is a jewel, a jewel with many facets, differing in appearance from each point of view. And while tell the truth and shame the devil is a very pretty sentiment, it need not necessarily mean anything. The devil, if there be a personal devil, and it has been pointed out, with some show of reason that an impersonal one could scarcely carry out such enormous contracts, would in all probability rather approve than otherwise of indiscriminate truth-telling. Irritation is the root of all evil, and there is nothing more irritating than to hear the truth about oneself. It is bad enough, in all conscience, to be insulted, but the truth of an insult is the barb that prevents its retraction. Truth hurts, has all the pathos of understatement. It not only hurts, but infuriates. It has no more right to go naked in public than anyone else. Indeed, it has less right, for truth-telling is natural to mankind, as is shown by its prevalence among the younger sort, such as children and cynics. And as Shakespeare long ago forgot to tell us, a touch of nature makes the whole world embarrassed. At this point, Mrs. Haggage sniffed. She considered he was growing improper. She distrusted nature. Truth-telling, then, may safely be regarded as an unamiable indiscretion. In art, the bare truth must, in common gallantry, be awarded a print petticoat, or one of canvas, as the case may be, to hide her nakedness. And in life it is a disastrous virtue that we have united to commend and avoid. Nor is the decision an unwise one, for man is a gregarious animal, knowing that friendship is, at best, but a feeble passion, and therefore to be treated with the care due an invalid. It is impossible to be quite candid in conversation with a man, and with a woman it is absolutely necessary that your speech should be candid. Truth, then, is the least desirable of acquaintances. But even if one wished to know the truth, the desire could scarcely be fulfilled. Francis Bacon, Lord Verulam, a prominent lawyer of Elizabeth's time, who would have written Shakespeare's plays, had his other occupations not prevented it, quotes Pilate as inquiring, What is truth? and then not staying for an answer. Pilate deserves all the praise he has never received. Nothing is quite true. Even truth lies at the bottom of a well, and not infrequently in other places. No assertion is one whit truer than its opposite. A mild buzz of protest rose about him. Canaston smiled and cocked his head on one side. We have, for example, he pointed out, a large number of proverbs. The small coin of conversation received everywhere whose value no one disputes. They are wrapped forth like an oath, with an air of settling the question once and forever. Well, there is safety in quotations, but even the devil can cite Shakespeare for his purpose. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today, agrees ill with sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And it is somewhat difficult to reconcile take care of the pence and the pounds will take care of themselves with the equally familiar penny-wise, pound-foolish. Yet the sayings are equally untrue. Any maxim is, perforce, a general statement, and therefore fallacious, and therefore universally accepted. Art is long, and life is short, 
but the platitudes concerning them are both insufferable and eternal. We must remember that a general statement is merely a snapshot at flying truth, an instantaneous photograph of a moving body. It may be the way that a thing is, but it is never the way in which any one ever saw that thing, or ever will. This is, of course, a general statement. As to present events, then, it may be assumed that no one is either capable or desirous of speaking the truth. Why, then, make such a pother about it as to the past? There we have carried the investigation of truth to such an extreme that nowadays very few of us dare believe anything. Opinions are difficult to secure when a quarter of an hour in the library will prove either side of any question. Formerly, people had a few opinions which, if erroneous, were at least universal. Nero was not considered an immaculate man. The flood was currently believed to have caused the death of quite a number of persons. And George Washington, it was widely stated, once cut down a cherry tree. But now all these comfortable illusions have been destroyed by the least little men who spend their time and lose their wits in chasing nimble and retiring truth to the extreme perturbation and drying up of the moistures. Canaston looked up for a moment, and Billy Woods, who had counted seven wrinkles and was dropping into a forlorn doze, started violently. His interest then became abnormal. There are, Mr. Canaston complained, rather reproachfully, too many inquiries, doubts, investigations, discoveries, and apologies. There are palliations of Tiberius, eulogies of Henry the Eighth, rehabilitations of Aaron Burr, Lucretia Borgia, it appears, was a grievously misunderstood woman, and Heliogabalus, a most exemplary monarch, and even the dog in the manger may have been a nervous animal in search of rest and quiet. As for Shakespeare, he was an atheist, a syndicate, a lawyer's clerk, an inferior writer, a Puritan, a scholar, a nom de plume, a doctor of medicine, a fool, a poacher, and another man of the same name. Information of this sort crops up on every side. Even the newspapers are infected. Truth lurks in the patent medicine advertisements, and sometimes creeps stealthily into the very editorials. We must all learn the true facts of history, whether we will or no. Eventually, the writers of historical romance will not escape. So the sad tale goes. Ignorance, beautiful divine ignorance, is forsaken by a generation that clamors for the truth. The earnest-minded person has plucked Zeus out of heaven, and driven the Maenad from the wood, and dragged Poseidon out of his deep-sea palace. The conclaves of Olympus, it appears, are merely nature myths. The stately legends clustering about them turn out to be a rather elaborate method of expressing the fact that it occasionally rains. The heroes who endured their angers and jests and tragic loves are delicately veiled allusions to the sun, surely a very harmless topic of conversation even in Greece. And the monsters, Gorgons and Hydras and Chimeras, Dyer, their grisly offspring, their futile opponents, are but personified frosts. Mythology, the poet's necessity, the fertile mother of his inventions, has become a series of atmospheric phenomena, and the labors of Hercules prove to be a dozen weather bulletins. Is it any cause for wonder that under this cheerless influence our poetry is either silent or unsold? The true poet must be ignorant, for information is the thief of rhyme, and it is only in dealing with... Canaston paused. Margaret had appeared in the vestibule, and behind her stood her father, looking very grave. We have made a most interesting discovery, Miss Hugonan airily announced to the world at large. It appears that Uncle Fred left all his property 
to Mr. Woods here. We found the will only last night. I'm sure you'll all be interested to learn I'm a pauper now, and intend to support myself by plain sewing. Any work of this nature you may choose to favor me with, ladies and gentlemen, will receive my most earnest attention. She dropped a curtsy. The scene appealed to her taste for the dramatic. Billy came toward her quickly. Peggy, he demanded of her, in the semi-privacy of the vestibule, will you kindly elucidate the meaning of this dap, this idiotic foolishness? Why this, she explained easily, and exhibited a folded paper. I found it in the grate last night. He inspected it with large eyes. That's absurd, he said at length. You know perfectly well this will isn't worth the paper it's written on. My dear sir, she informed him, coldly, you are vastly mistaken. You see, I've burned the other one, she pushed by him. Mr. Canaston, are you ready for our walk? We'll finish the paper some other time. Wasn't it the strangest thing in the world? Her deep, mellow voice died away as she and Canaston disappeared in the gardens. Billy gasped. But meanwhile, Colonel Hugonin had given the members of his daughter's house party some inkling as to the present posture of affairs. They were gazing at Billy Woods rather curiously. He stood in the vestibule of Selwood, staring after Margaret Hugonin. But they stared at him, and over his curly head, sculptured above the doorway, they saw the eagle, the symbol of the crude, incalculable power of wealth. Mr. Woods stood in the vestibule of his own house. Seventeen. By gad, said Colonel Hugonin, very grimly. Anybody would think you'd just lost a fortune instead of inheriting one. Wish you joy of it, Billy. I ain't saying, you know, we shan't miss it, my daughter and I. No begad for it's a nice pot of money, and we'll miss it damnably. But since somebody had to have it, I'd much rather it was you, my boy, than a set of infernal, hypocritical, philanthropic sharks. And I'm damn glad Frederick has done the square thing by you. Yes, begad. The old gentleman was standing beside Mr. Woods in the vestibule of Selwood, some distance from the other members of the house party, and was speaking in confidence. He was sincere. I don't say that the thought of facing the world at sixty-five with practically no resources save his half-pay. I think I've told you that the colonel's diversions had drunk up his wife's fortune and his own like a glass of water. I don't say that this thought moved him to hilarity. Over it, indeed, he pulled a frankly grave face. But he cared a deal for Billy. And even now there was balm, soothing, priceless balm, to be had of the reflection that this change in his prospects affected materially the prospects of those cultured, broad-minded, philanthropic persons who had aforetime set his daughter to requiring of him a perusal of Herbert Spencer. Billy was pretty well aware how monetary matters stood with the old wastrel, and the sincerity of the man affected him far more than the most disinterested sentiments would have done. Mr. Woods accordingly shook hands with entirely unnecessary violence. You're a trump, that's what you are, he declared. Oh, yes, you are, Colonel. You're an incorrigible, incurable old ace of trumps. The very best there is in the pack, and it's entirely useless for you to attempt to conceal it. God, said the Colonel, and don't you worry about that will, Mr. Woods advised. I, I can't explain things just now, but it's all right. You just wait. Just wait till I've seen Peggy, Billy urged in desperation, and I'll explain everything. By gad, 
said the colonel, but Mr. Woods was halfway out of the vestibule. Mr. Woods was in an unenviable state of perturbation. He could not quite believe that Peggy had destroyed the will. The thing out-Heroded Herod, out-Margareted Margaret. But if she had, it struck him as a high-handed proceeding, entailing certain vague penalties made, and provided by the law to cover just such cases, penalties of whose nature he was entirely ignorant and didn't care to think. Heavens, for all he knew, that angel might have let herself in for a jail sentence. Billy pictured that queen among women, that paragon, with her glorious hair cropped and her pink-tipped little hand set to beating hemp. He had a shadowy notion that the lives of all female convicts were devoted to this pursuit, and groaned in horror. In the name of heaven, Mr. Woods demanded of his soul, what possible reason could she have had for this new insanity? And in the name of heaven, why couldn't she have put off her tete-a-tete with Canaston long enough to explain? And in the name of heaven, what does she see to admire in that putty-faced grimacing ass anyway? And in the name of heaven, what am I to say to this poor old man here? I can't explain that his daughter isn't in any danger of being poor, but merely being locked up in jail. And in the name of heaven, how long does that outrageous angel expect me to remain in this state of suspense? Billy groaned again and paced the vestibule. Then he retraced his steps, shook hands with Colonel Hugonan once more, and, Canaston or no Canaston, set out to find her. End of chapter 17